Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Jane Fox about her new book, The Hungry Mother, Recipes for Recovery and Life in the Kitchen, which traces Jane's past struggles with addiction, her recovery, and how cooking and faith provided a path to sustained sobriety. Jane is a New York State Certified Recovery Peer Advocate and co-founder of the Northeast Recovery Alliance of Long Island, a sobriety resources group for Long Island Jewish community members. She's a leading advocate for incorporating structured culinary workshops into drug and alcohol recovery programs. Jane Fox, welcome to That Said. Thank you, Michael. So happy to see you again. Me too. What, over almost 55 years now? (laughs) Yeah, so for the interest of full transparency for our listening audience, Jane and I have known each other since the seventh grade. So it's been several decades since the seventh grade. So it's great to talk to you about this wonderful new book that you wrote called The Hungry Mother, Recipes for Recovery and Life in the Kitchen. So, Jane, before you take us on your journey, tell us, if you would, about the legend of The Hungry Mother. How did you come to this title? What is that legend? Well, actually, it was a recommendation, I have to be honest, uh, transparency. The Hungry Mother was a restaurant that I worked in Tucson, Arizona. And I I wanted to call the book The Hungry Mother. And the editor, the publisher said, you've got to, I don't understand that. And we found this legend of The Hungry Mother. And it really speaks to how mothers can sacrifice for their children. So she insisted that I put it in the front of the book. But it was really a cafe that I worked at in Tucson, Arizona. And the hungry mother is a really good metaphor for, um, you know, the journey of sobriety and staying sober for your family as a woman. Well, the hungry mother, though, tells the tale of a mother who sacrifices herself while wandering in the wilderness to save her child. And you say that's the perfect metaphor for sober moms who are navigating society using culinary activities to enrich relationships with our children and ourselves, right? So, because the book is about your journey and then the importance of culinary activities to enrich your relationships with yourself and your children. Do I have that right? And also more, it's to help sustain long-term sobriety. I've been kind of involved in this field for a while you know, boots on the ground. And um, if you can develop hobbies and passions and interests in the early stages of sobriety, this cooking will, if you can develop cooking skills, it will really serve you well. It's a stepping stone to a better life, honestly. And the culinary meditation is when you're peeling, chopping, cleaning, you know, in the kitchen, I kind of go into the zone. Like it's like everything else like has to be out of the way and I can focus on the cooking. And then as you're cooking, like certain thoughts will float in and out and all of a sudden go, well, that, you know, I didn't think about that or that really upset me or I'm really happy about that. It's just a way to chalk out time for yourself to like get in touch with your feelings and what's really going on. And cooking does it for me. And so to understand the importance of culinary activities and as a metaphor for sobriety. Let's go back in time a bit. And it's 1969 and we graduate from high school. You and I do. And um, off you go to Pittsburgh, right? Yes. So what was your plan? It was a five-year nursing program in four years. I had gotten into other schools, but already I was, I wanted to do the opposite of what everyone else was doing. I was had this terrible label on myself that, uh, uh, you know, we were anti-everything in 69. And I just, I didn't want to go to Syracuse. You know, I'd gotten in, but I really wanted to be a nurse. And I didn't want to be just, you know, like a regular RN. I wanted to get a degree. So off I go to the University of Pittsburgh. It's a very uh, vigorous program. It's five years and four. You, you are in school all summer long. And I start off, and then while I'm there, I kind of got involved with, I was, I, was, I was already doing drugs in high school. I wasn't doing hard drugs, but I was doing a lot of whatever I can get my hands on. So I 
it just kind of accelerated in Pittsburgh. And I hung around with a crowd that um, liked drugs. And uh, I found myself just, you know, loving them and getting involved. And I eventually had to drop out. And you became in at Pittsburgh, what you called a recreational heroin user. I'm not exactly sure what a recreational right. heroin user you know, means. Back in the old days, drugs were very different. You know, the we were hippies, you know, and we would always try something new or the next thing. And at that point, you could try heroin and not be addicted to it. It was just, you could do it and then leave it alone. And then if someone else had it, then you could try it, you know, the next time someone had it. It wasn't a must have, but I was using drugs in one form or another every day, whatever mm -hmm. I can get my hands on. And so schoolwork obviously suffers. Your parents grow anxious and suspicious. And what happens? So, um, I come home for a visit and they realize that I'm, I'm a mess. They said the only way you can go back to school is if you see this psychiatrist, this Freudian psychiatrist. It was, through, you know, Jewish geography. And um, her office was in the lobby of the one of the hospitals that I was on rotation with. So I said, all right, I'll do it. And um, I was struggling. I was in a relationship. It was very toxic. And finally, one day I realized I need out. I don't know how to do this. And she said, well, you know, dear, you can volunteer yourself into a psychiatric hospital it just it'll be a safe haven for you next thing i'm there for three months you know and it was pretty devastating and then i um ended up coming home to great neck working at a store in great neck and tried to i went to cw post for a little bit and then i was just i was struggling i was not happy and i had the chance to um visit boulder so i flew out to boulder it was a spring break i was at cw post it must have been like my junior year i fly to see she goes why don't we go visit another friend in tucson sure we all jump in the car and when i was in tucson i ran into people that i had gone to school with in pittsburgh and it was the deal sealed i was moving there it was great it was great 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 well you're right went, yeah, i'm sorry just to interrupt you you say of moving to tucson that you were hung over with the humiliation of the first of many psychiatric hospitalizations for substance abuse and a change of location you thought was the perfect solution. So you're running. Absolutely. And there you could be accepted for being kind of a dropout, a hippie. I mean, it was like frontier town. It was crazy. Tucson in the early 70s was a very vibrant place, a lot of pot dealers. But Drug dealing then is not anything what it is today. It was, we were against like the establishment. Pot was against the law. We all wanted to smoke pot. And how do we get pot to our friends? We transport it from Mexico to Tucson and then from Tucson to places east. And that's all I did. I was a driver. But I hung out with that crowd. I loved the guys there. They had shiny pickup trucks and crawl snap, you know, shirts and cowboy boots. It was I was having a blast. And then um, I wasn't really strung out. I was doing drugs pretty regularly and not even heroin. I was just whatever you had, I would take. I had no fear. And then um, my dad had gotten sick and my they wanted me to move back to New York. So I moved to New York. And as soon as I crossed the Triborough Bridge, I tried to get heroin. I hated New York. I was not happy there. And I called up some old friends that I knew before I went to Tucson, you know, the worst kind of people. And we met up and I did heroin straight for almost two years. But doing heroin with a rich Jewish boyfriend and other people, you know, you're not like the strung out thing you always had. You know, you always had and you didn't have to go to great lengths to get it. Keith Richards says in his autobiography that the only reason he thinks he survived his heroin addiction was because he was able to get pharmaceutical grade heroin because he was wealthy enough and well enough connected that he knew what he was getting 
was pure enough that it wasn't going to kill him for an overdose. But in those days, you didn't. The overdose was really would have been, I hate to say it, but your fault because the drugs were pure, and your dealer didn't want to lose you as a customer. He wanted you alive. So, um, you know, you you had confidence that it wasn't going to kill you. You write though of your days in Tucson that coming off of the humiliation of psychiatric hospitalizations and substance abuse, these dealers who you stayed a long time with were sexy and mysterious with lots of cash to throw around for dinners, gifts of Indian jewelry, safe houses in the desert. Melt my heart. It was the land of milk and honey, and I was game. And so there was this sense of accomplishment, I guess, that you had that you didn't previously have at Pittsburgh and perhaps even in high school? In high school, I didn't feel special. In high school, it was always a struggle to be popular or smart. or And it seemed that's what everybody wanted out of you. So I went the opposite way to show. I was like, I was rebelling in a very messed up fashion. And in Tucson, you know, I was earning big money. I was doing great. I People wanted to be with me, you know, to, to drive their pots all over. And I, I felt, well, this is a great job. And then when you got there, there was a celebration. Oh, you're so great. Here's your money. Oh, come on. You know, anyway, that it, I was young. Well, yeah. you crossed the Triborough Bridge, something I've always hated in my life, crossing that bridge. And then for the next two years, you're using heroin daily, and now I expect you're an addict. Definitely. And so what was that like? Maybe we can talk about what well, the... Can't really, um, I mean, I was kind of functional. I went to work for my father, so no one was calling me out on being a few minutes late or party or having attitude. But in those days, I could, you know, get a shot in the morning and be good till night. I could function. And you're not nodding out. You're just I. So here you are, you're a heroin addict in New York, though, functioning uh, somewhat. And when is it that you get married? Um, I get married. I get clean and sober in 1976. I get sober in 1976. But before that, I had been in and out of psychiatric hospitals for substance abuse. In those days, there weren't rehabs. And if your family had money, it was better to go to a, a private psychiatric hospital where they considered you having a mental illness. And so after that, um, things got really bad. I had an intervention with Judge Walker. Good old Judge Walker. So let's talk about this for a second. So we're now we're at about 1976. As we said, we graduate high school in 69. You're out in Tucson probably by 71, Correct. 72. Right. And you're a regular heroin user now, though functional after a fashion. And we turn to... Uh, 1976, I guess your parents said you you have to go see the New York Chief Judge Saul Walkler. They knew I was in bad shape. I had got, right. This is embarrassing. The last hospital I was in was Long Island Hillside, you know, uh, LIJ, Long Island Jewish. Yeah. They had a drug program, and I got kicked out <laughs> for not following orders. For like, To get kicked out of a drug program is pretty devastating and that's when my parents took me to judge walker a family friend and he said look either you go to this place in manhattan called ariba or i'm gonna commit you to a facility upstate new york for a year involuntarily con commit correct. you correct because i had a record of like psychiatric hospitalizations they didn't know it was you know they could have done it Janie, you were given a choice in 1976 to enter Ariba, which is a therapeutic community in New York City, or face involuntary commitment in a psychiatric hospital in upstate New York, and you choose Ariba. So tell us about detoxification and Ariba and the process of getting sober. 
Um, well, detox is usually done in a medical facility. It was July 4th, 1976, tall ships, big bicentennial. And I have to go to this really funky place in Far Rockaway. I'm the only woman, and there are like 15 people detoxing from heroin. And all of a sudden, I, I went to look at the ships sailing from, you could see the ships sailing, the big, beautiful sailboats. And I went, why aren't I celebrating? What am I doing? Who? What's going on? And all of a sudden, at that moment, I realized that um, I was embarrassed, I was humiliated, and also I was had no chance of a good life. And I saw all these people, like, through the windows, literally, on the beach, having a picnic, you know, with family, laughing, joking, and here I am behind bars, detoxing. So it finally hit me. And then yeah. I go, so I go to this place, Ariba. It's a, um, a townhouse on 51st Street between Park and Madison. I walk in and I hear screaming in the lobby. I, I have no idea where I am. And it turns out it was scream therapy. And this gentleman, this very uh, amazing uh, psychiatrist, had Dr. Dan Casriel started a therapeutic he had actually just to give you some background on it he had started um uh daytop with monsignor o'brien in new york in the 70s and they were they were bringing the therapeutics community to the east coast there weren't any then you had daytox phoenix house and um synanon and so he took that modal and but he saw that at daytop all the middle-class junkies were not making it it was like not a good place if you if your family had money or if you had any kind of college you know it wasn't for the well-to-do so to speak so he started this niche business of like for rich junkies and they lived there we lived there for a year we had to live there for a year and do what you're told and every day we would go to an emotional group and you would yell it out on the carpet on the mats I'm happy, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm hurt, I'm afraid. And it was a very intense process, but it worked. It worked yeah. for a lot of people. You wrote that about the process and the internal dialogue that you went from denying the truth to blaming others, to rationalizing addictive behavior, to self-pity, and then finally being ready for a new dialogue. So can you walk us through that internal dialogue that, that you had to go through to be successful, to remain sober as an adult? Well, that's a hard question. It's um, really every 24 hours. If you can just get past the moment of wanting to pick up, and then you can go about your day, and then at some point you need to have a meeting or a therapy session or speak to a sponsor, the inner dialogue doesn't really change until decades later. The inner dialogue of not wanting to get high is something you have to say to yourself on a daily basis. And that goes on for years. You have a, you start to have a life, a career, friends, and the intensity of the feeling starts to diminish because it's being filled up with other things relationships, um, self-esteem. I can't really speak to the di the internal dialogue, but I can tell you on a daily basis, you have to remind yourself that you just can't get high anymore. It's not an option. You write that if I had the courage to be active, meaning a drug user, if I had the courage to be active, why not flip it around and commit to being sober? Why not have the courage to be sober. That's what I'm talking about, the inner dialogue. You're talking to yourself, it seems, through this process, yes? Right. It does take courage because when you're strung out, people don't realize, and this is something that I talk about in the book, you have your own system of values, your own system of operating. Just to get to cop, to score, takes courage. You're going into a bad neighborhood or you're going some, you're asking someone for something, you've got to get the money together. So there's a lot of scary things that go on to have to score. And then you say, well, 
then now that you're sober, you go, oh, I don't want to go at a meeting. What will people think of me? How am I going to get through? There's a certain kind of courage that you can flip to staying sober. If I could have, if I could score every day, I could stay sober every day. And you say, though, as you just implied, that these guilty visions of your strung out behavior haunted you during the sleepless nights of early abstinence. Yes. Yes, that had to do with my, ch- I got sober in 76, I got married, I had a great career, and then I had two daughters. And um, my marriage uh, fell apart very suddenly, and um, I slipped. I had a very bad divorce. I was with an infant and toddler, and my ex had found his first of four future wives. And the thought of the second time I got sober, I had children. There was no way I could be a good parent. There was no way I could be a mother and strung out. So that was the choice. And at, when you're when you're getting sober, you don't sleep very well. You get, and you you're haunted by visions of you know what if what if you know and that's it was a very scary moment thinking that I lost my children because I wanted to get high. What kind of a schmuck am I? <laughs> Who yeah. does that? So um, that's where that came from. I want to talk about recidivism in, in a minute. Something you write about, which was of interest to me, and it was a topic that arose in other podcast conversations I had with various authors who wrote about the early civil rights movement and you write about this, which is the importance of hope. So can you talk about that, Jane? Because that featured prominently in your writing, and it's an important subject. Uh, yes. So for the first couple of years, you have to go. I went to meetings on a daily basis, pretty much every day or five days a week. And I was very fortunate that there were so many groups in my neighborhood. Um if you don't have hope, if you don't, you have to hope that you're going to get better. You have to hope that you'll lose this strung out feeling. If you don't have hope, it takes tremendous energy to change for anyone. If you want to stop smoking cigarettes, if you want to go on a diet, it takes tremendous strength to pull yourself through those bad moments. To pull myself through, I was hopeful that I would put this behind me. I was hopeful that my children would come to respect me and love me and admire me for the mommy that I wanted to be. If you don't have hope, then why bother? It's a very important uh, concept. I'm hopeful that this will work for me. With this hope, it seemed to me, in again, reading the book as carefully as I did, and I loved this book. It was not because... Uh, we're friends since the seventh grade, but it's a incredibly important book. You write that this hope led to making peace with your spiritual nature and finding a purpose in life, which was essential to preventing recidivism. In, in Judaism, it's the concept is returning from going astray, teshuva, being open to God. In Christianity, it's the parable of the prodigal son, I guess, Luke fifteen eleven. And if you want to not read the, the Bibles, you can listen to Prodigal Son by the Rolling Stones on Beggar's Banquet, which talks about the, the same thing. But talk about this openness to uh, spirituality, higher power, and a the way it, it, which it helped you, as you write, repair your soul? Um, so when I got sober, and I was a sober mom, so this is like, I'm already, this is like in the 90s, I'm a sober mom. I realized and I saw there were many other women just like me. And we, it, it was a tough journey. I mean, not only are you bringing yourself up the ladder, you've got to manage your children at the same time. 
we know how kids can be. Mommy, mommy, take me, give me, go. Let's, you know, and if you're just holding on by a thread not to pick up, it's very hard to listen to what they're saying. You know, you want to shut them out. So fast forward, this is now um, like 2009. I've been sober for all these years, just kind of like guiding, gliding along. And my youngest daughter goes off to college and I'm all alone. I feel all alone. It's like the emptiness syndrome. And I kind of, I relapse again. I'm about to, I've slipped. I'm about to, I know that relapse is on the horizon. And I've been working in the recovery industry for a while. And I knew I could get a job in South Florida. So I moved to Florida. I'm just only saying this. So I ended up meeting, I got involved with this Jewish recovery uh, program and I met an amazing rabbi, he's like a saint, Rabbi uh, Abraham Korsky. I was helping one of these workshops and he, the spirituality is like the next level of involvement for all of us. And if you've, you know, we always say people who've had a hard life or, they, or they're recovered, if you're recovered, your spirituality is at really high speed. Because you needed faith to recover. You need to have an awareness. I pray to my higher power that I'm not going to use today. But as time goes on and you're not that strung out addict, you you still have the concept of a higher power in your in your head. And as I went through life, I realized, and I had this, you know, aha like moment when I met this rabbi, I realized that my higher power could become my is my religion and I could return to my Jewish faith and the higher power was really Hashem you know and that was protecting me and now I I work very hard at my Judaism and I, I know I'm skipping all over the place but my the spirituality is a very important component and I I actually use it when I, I run a group for uh, family members they have to have their own spirituality to get through this journey with their loved ones spirituality is the glue that holds me together in any for any reason it doesn't have to be traumatic just getting through the day and the higher power that i learned about in the 12-step program evolved it morphed into my judaism uh on this spiritual redemption which you write as the vehicle to empower your purpose and ultimately to help you forgive yourself i want to talk about two things one is you say in this process, person-to-person -person action of holding hands and praying together was a game changer for you, resonating with a core belief that you had lost touch with, allowing you to reach self-actualization. So talk a little bit about the notion of self-forgiveness and this resonation with the core belief that you had lost touch with during your days of addiction. Growing up, I, we weren't really practicing Jews. We were more like culturally Jewish. I don't know about your family, but I never looked at it as like a religious experience. And um, now that I was sober, I had to, you know, redeem myself. I felt redemption was important. And also I began to realize that you've got to give it away before you can keep it. You have to pass it on. And as a mother, I felt very strongly about passing wanting the next mother to have success because if we fail as mothers in sobriety it's not us it's our children and their children you beget a whole generation of dysfunctional people if you can't pull yourself together and i felt very strongly about this for other mothers and i did the best i could i i tried to run groups and do things and eventually um when I was faltering, I moved to Florida and started managing halfway houses for women to save myself, so to speak. And we'll get to that in a second, because that's really where the culinary component of the book. Remember, it's The Hungry Mother, which was the parable we talked about, the subtitle of which is Recipes for Recovery and Life in the Kitchen and how that experience informed the book. But I wanted to turn back we're going back and forth because this is not a linear process by any means. And I want to talk a little bit about, uh, before we 
dive in a little bit deeper to recidivism and then ultimately, if you will, the happy ending. But I want to talk a little bit about the relationship during this period of addiction and how it played out with your your children. Because you write that, interestingly to me, that being a mom, being an addicted mom, actually the being a mom part had an advantage to you and that once you were honest with your children, that that honesty provided an opportunity to account for past actions so that you and they could move on. That once they knew you were trying to stay sober, you felt like you couldn't or weren't going to fail. So talk about addiction and parenting and the process. We talked a little bit about the driving force of addiction made you a liar and you were deceitful on many levels, especially perhaps within your family. But talk about this process of being a recovering mom, motherhood and recovery and maintaining your sobriety. Um, my girls um, were pretty young when they, when I was uh, strung out um, the second time. They were like um, six and 10 or seven and 11. They witnessed everything. You can't hide from kids. And they would say, are you all right, mommy? Is everything okay? Oh, yeah, everything's great. Everything, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And then um, they begin to doubt their judgment. Like intuitive, trusting your instincts as to what's right and wrong is a very precious gift. And I was making mincemeat out of their own instincts. I was already setting them up to be dysfunctional. And um, I had to be honest with them and tell them that I was now in recovery and mommy goes to a meeting every day. Well, what's, all right, all right. So it, you create what I call a sobriety safety net. The more people you tell you're in recovery, rather than keeping it secretive, the more it makes you think twice about falling because these other people are going to know. And um, I just had to be honest with them. And then it was to my advantage. I was, I was very proud that I was a sober mom. I told anybody that would listen to me, I'm a sober mom. Their, their friends knew that I was a sober mom and not that anyone knew I was strung out because I had moved by then, but um, it allows for honest dialogue. You want to see yourself in the most realistic light that you can be, you know, when you're in recovery, because you don't want to go there again. You don't want to be this dishonest. You don't care about anybody else except getting high. You have to get rid of that. And the best way to get rid of that is to talk about it. But people really, in reality, they're still stigmatized. They're not going to be talking to every, anyone about it. But if you talk to your kids about it in a certain fashion, it became like, if I didn't, if, like my oldest daughter would go, Mom, you're going to be late for your meeting. You better leave now. And I would go, what? <laughs> Are you my sponsor? No, but kids love to like have it over their parents. So. I had to keep it up because they would know right away if I failed. Importantly, you say, and I'll read you something you wrote, which is being honest was an opportunity, being honest with your children. And, and I think the word children doesn't necessarily imply young no, middle right. schoolers. It's any right. age, any right. age child. Your child could be 30 years old or, or 12 years old. Being honest was an opportunity to account for past actions so that we could move on. Children need to connect the dots and quietly put the pieces of the puzzle together. It gives them a chance to reconcile the past with the future and a reassurance that everything will be okay. Breaking anonymity with the family goes a long way to preventing recidivism. Yes, I can't stress that enough. The more secretive you are, it just feeds all the negative stuff in your head. Once you're honest, you don't you want to be known as being in recovery. You don't want to be known as failing and being strung out again. The honesty really, really helps because there's no hiding from it. It's the truth. 
and the truth will help you. The truth is your friend in recovery. Right. There's so, the expression of this truth will set you free, right? Well, for me, it wasn't setting me free. It was more like it was my safeguard. My truth was nasty. The truth of being an addict is nasty. I didn't want to repeat history. I desperately didn't want to repeat history. And we're up to recidivism. You mentioned earlier that your first relapse was in 1994 as part of your divorce. This was after 15 years of, of no, my, sobriety, I, right? That's sober in 94. My relapse happened a few years before that. I, got I had been sober for 15 years. Then I got divorced. I tried to keep it together for a year or two. And then I started to use sleeping medication or whatever I could. And then all of a sudden, I found codeine cough syrup. And I just went off. I went off the rails of that for two years. So you're off. You're on. And now I'm back on, I'm, I'm sober now. My girls, I've moved from where I had lived with my, uh, ex. I moved to Seacliff and I didn't know how to, how am I going to impart to my children that you don't have to worry, mommy's okay. It starts with cooking. It started with me making dinner and making the dinner. If I could say to my children, kids, dinner's ready. It's like a lullaby for the house. The house feels homey. It feels like that's your home. You can count on that. And then of course, you know, they might hate your food or they, they're fighting at the table. Everyone's bickering, but that's a normal family. That's how it works. You sit at the table together. Everyone complains or they cry or they fight. But at the end of the day, we were a family and we all, we know, we, we, we know where we are with each other. And, um, the cooking on a daily basis for me, I'm just going to skip back for a second. In 1994, when I got sober, I had been on, I'd been considered an expert in recovery. I've been on TV a couple of times and there was a woman producer um, and they had started a new CNBC was just starting in New Jersey and they needed a cooking segment. And she said, Jane, you know, she remembered I was a great cook. You know, she doesn't know anything about me being strung out when I was married. I was a great cook. And I was like, she goes, would you like to do a cooking segment on CNBC? And I said, sure. I was four weeks sober. And I, this limousine pulls into my driveway, picks me up, and I make a meal on TV. And holy shit, I said to myself, wow, I'm going to, I'm going to read up on this stuff. And every day for the first year of sobriety, I made something different. I read the New York Times. I made meals. My kids were going, Ma, we want tater tots and pizza bagels. You stop with this, you know, this fancy food. And um, I found that the cooking really structured my day. I wasn't working for that year. For the first two years, I wasn't working. I was staying at home and going to meetings. I was very lucky. I didn't have to worry about money. And the cooking really grounded me. It gave a start and an end to the day. And my children loved it. It showed my love. It was the only way I could show them that I was helping and recovering. And that's when I had, and then I almost relapsed again. I go well, to I want to, I want to talk about this. I want to, I don't want to brush over this period in 2012. So you have this period where the kids are still young and you're at home and you're. No, um, that's earlier. That's in 94. Right. That's what I'm talking about. And then, and you begun to think about cooking as a 12 step ish sort of yeah. program for you, because I think you write in the book that in 12 step, you have to follow the 12 step program to recovery and, and maintenance of sobriety. In cooking, you have to follow the same steps because if you skip one, the meal becomes inedible. Exactly. You so have you, to follow structure. And for addicts, recovering addicts, structure is key. Rituals are very important as a recovering addict. And if you create the ritual, if you create the ritual of cooking, you're setting up, and I call it the culinary safety net. If I didn't cook for like a day or two, I go, what, what's going on with you, Jane? You know, are you, or I realized how upset I was about something and it made me go, oh, I better reach out. I better speak to so-and-so. I better get an extra meeting and, you know, I bet, I better go for a walk. I better do something because 
It was really a barometer for me. It was like my own 12-step, exactly. So where I want to go back in time, which was sort of how you came to sort of come to this realization about the relationship between the normal 12-step program and the sort of the culinary 12-step program, if you will. In 2012, as you said earlier, your daughters are grown up. You've got this empty nest syndrome challenging your sobriety. So you move to Florida and you become a halfway house manager. And you said that during that five-year period, what followed was you're witnessing the positive impact of culinary activities on recovering people and for you. So it was born of experience in the halfway house, right? So talk about how it was implemented there. And then we've talked a little bit about how you've implemented it, but I want to talk about the continuing process of cooking and managing transitional residences for women built around this concept. So in Florida, they have a good model. And if you've been in inpatient treatment, because the zoning is so much lax down there, you can, they have a lot of halfway houses, which means it's, you're surrounded by sober peers. There's curfew. There are rules. And the first rule is you got to cook for yourself. You don't have money to, you, you know, you don't have to, you can't be going to a restaurant. So we would take them shopping once a week in like, we called it the druggy buggy. It's like an eight person passenger van. I'm driving a Walmart. The girls get out, they buy their food. They only have a certain amount of money to spend. You have to kind of eyeball what they're getting. No, you're not allowed to get this. You can't get this. Then they come home. They have to put it in the refrigerator and they have to cook for themselves for the next seven days using what they've bought. And that is a tremendous challenge. There are some people that just want to eat snack food and Doritos and Coca-Cola. Okay, you can do that. But you're going to be hungry someday. And hunger has a tremendous way (laughs) of making you think. So these kids had to, for the first time, because when you're strung out, you don't spend money on food. You don't care about food. Now you have to keep the refrigerator full. You have to keep the kitchen neat. You have to make a meal for yourself. And if you, and if you blow it, if you blew all your money and ate all your food in the first three days, there's no one to bail you out. And we had a clot. There's always a closet that has leftover canned goods. If, you know, we don't want you to starve, but you have to feel the pain of your irresponsibility and feeling hunger and being dissatisfied with your food. It's a great learn. It's a great tool. If you're hungry, you're going to pay attention. So. Those people who embraced like cooking, they would cook. Oh, let me make, I just made something. Let me give it to you. And they had a friendship over what they were sharing. They were bonding with other people. It was a great thing to watch. And those people who, and also part of being the manager, you have to, uh, you make the rounds once or twice a day or people make the rounds to check how neat the kitchen is, has the garbage been taken out. It's crazy. And those people who had neat kitchens and took out their garbage, were the ones who went on to stay sober. And then they learned, then they started to have community dinners. Once a week, we would have teams. You cook, you clean, you prep, you but I'm not doing, I don't want, well, everyone began to love that because it was a big food fest. And who doesn't like food? <laughs> so it was, um, it was an interesting thing to watch. But yes, they, they, um, everyone had to learn cook you know, culinary responsibility as they got sober. That's just, you know, something else to think about. You write that those who embraced culinary activities seem better equipped to maintain a sober lifetime. I guess it creates habits and structure and strength, right? What rituals and what this book is really for, you know, there's a whole generation of people who have now been sober for decades. We couldn't say that in the 60s or 70s. Now there are generations of people who are sober. We want to sustain that sobriety, but you want to get joy and pleasure and and purpose out of being sober. You went through all this hell. You might as well come out with something fabulous. As you write, cooking a new recipe requires courage, and it takes on special meaning and urgency 
in especially early recovery, but I, I suppose throughout you're always in recovery, right? So absolutely, yeah. I'm not in. I I'm always in recovery now in a spiritual way. I'm not in recovery because I need it or I'll use. It's like it evolves. And the book talks about now that we're sober for a long time, how are we going to make it, make our lives glorious? How are we going to, you know, you earn some glory here, like make it fun, make it, make it satisfying. Yeah. You you wrote, you made me smile. You wrote that hormonally now, hormonally, it's impossible for you to make small quantities of food. Nurturing others allows you to nurture your, yourself. Yeah. So when I, I, I'll tell you a funny story. I mean, I make a lot of chicken soup. And the synagogue that I belong to has something called the mitzvah squad. When somebody's sick, the rabbi visits. So I said, well, why don't you bring them a, a thing of chicken soup when you go, when somebody's sick? Well, we don't want to, but I'll make it. So now there's always 30 containers of chicken soup in the synagogue's freezer. And even when I'm at home and I'm making, I can't, I'm only one person. If you make soup, it's not for one person. It's for like scads of people. So I, I put it in the freezer and I bring it. To, when I go somewhere, I bring it. Or someone's sick or a friend has got a thing going on. I go, oh, I have some chicken soup. Would you like some? <laughs> and you wrote, you wrote in the book, I am no longer known for my past, but instead for my healing chicken soup, which is wonderful as a mitzvah, but also as a sense of purpose, that it is something about which you can be self-proud. And I think that must be important. Absolutely. You have to take, we have to give ourselves good feelings. Or If we're not happy, we're not going to stay sober. If we don't find the quiet hum of satisfaction in our lives, there's no more drama. The drama's over. You have to have the steady hum of satisfaction to make your life run and and not think about going back and picking up a drug. And I just can't say. And, and so the cooking now, I started um, this program at the synagogue where we uh, it's an outreach program. And it allowed I realized that I felt very strongly. And I, I will say this. I felt very strongly about Jewish kids in sobriety, Jewish kids who had passed away from drugs. It was, I found it very, uh, you know, we were born not too long after the Holocaust, you know, and I, any Jewish life that was lost to, dare I say, stupidity or impulse or, you know, it just ripped me up when I go to a lot of, I went to a lot of funerals of lovely Jewish kids. And I felt this is my calling. I, I have, I, I just can't sit back. If I could help somebody one day. So that's how I got involved in this, um, family group for our synagogue. And, uh, it's made a mensch out of me. <laughs> I feel like it's made a mensch now. <laughs> well, I mean, you're right that the importance of making meals for others signals a generous spirit and a commitment to generating satisfying relationships. So it is about developing a sense of purpose, as we talked about, but evolving to have a generous spirit and a commitment to the generation of satisfying relationships, which I think is probably as critically important uh, a part of your life as is any in these years that we find ourselves in now. And I, I feel very lucky that I found it because, um, I couldn't have done it any sooner. I didn't have the wisdom to do it any sooner. Writing this book, I don't know what I was thinking. I had always had these stories and I, I felt that I had to clarify myself. But what I really discovered was this culinary, you know, like, as you say, 12 step. I, I think it's a real saving grace. And I'm kind of on a mission to put it out there in the world, so, you know, for other people. You know, over the years, I had to support myself and my kids. And my kids had medical issues. I couldn't get like, I couldn't get back into corporate. A long time ago, I'd been in advertising. 
it was impossible to have a corporate job and be a single parent, a sober single parent, and have a big job. It just it wasn't going to happen. And um, so I found these little cute jobs here and there, but I was always home to make dinner. Um, there was always food in the refrigerator. The kids knew that if they were if they did something wrong, I'd find out about it because I was aware. You know, I wasn't asleep at the wheel. And it just really saved my life. And I, I just really want to pass that on to the next person. And I thought I want to talk about two things, and then we uh, are almost out of time here. You wrote something which sort of made me tear up, and it was that you said, by hitting rock bottom, you gain humility, integrity, and wholeness. Finally seeing that sobriety is a life-affirming experience not one of embarrassments and shame, but a blessing in disguise. That's quite a revelation. So can we talk about that? And then I'd like to turn to the Northeast Recovery Alliance of Long Island to close us out, Jane. The, the blessing in disguise is that I, it, it let me find my, Jew, my Jewish roots, which I hadn't. My Jewish roots are really what makes the day good. Not that I pray or think of that, but I just think, you know, we are beings on this earth. What is our purpose? It's Judaism to me is very existential. And starting in like the seventh grade when we did, you know, Camus and all those existential writings that was revolutionary, you know, it always stayed with me. And that's probably why I was a little bit of a loner, kind of romantic, you know, she's by herself, she doesn't need any. And um, the faith has just, I, would never imagine in my wildest dreams that I would have faith and hope and a certain spirit of giving. You know, I feel very lucky to have that now. But it was only attained, you write, by hitting, so it, hitting bottom. Rock bottom. Yeah. People don't seek out spirituality unless they're desperate. Or maybe they've been brought up in a certain environment where, spirit, you know, maybe a Buddhist home or something like that. I didn't have, we didn't have that. And so hitting rock bottom was like finding God. Right. But hitting rock bottom has to coincide, it seems, from what I gathered from the book, with being honest. Honest to yourself and honest to your children and those whoever else you are in or want to be in relationships with. That notion of honesty and transparency and acknowledgement has to be part of this hit rock bottom and then begin to pull yourself up. Do I have that right? Yes, because you re- you've seen your, you have to reveal that. You always, your first impulse is to hide it. If you hide it, it's like you're pretending it never happened. You have to say, this was me. This is me. And I have to um, acknowledge there's a part of me that, look, there's still felony in my I mean, I, I, you know, like I'm a mensch, but I'm still like, I could be evil too. <laughs> I have like such bad things that I do, but, um, you know, you can't get rid of felony in your heart. It's there forever, but you can curb it. <laughs> you don't have to act on it. Right. I have a key to the synagogue. And I think to myself, if my grandfather only knew, he would tell everyone to hide everything. She's coming. <laughs> He's going to steal it. So tell us as we transition out of this wonderful conversation, the Northeast Recovery Alliance of Long Island and what what it is. And if others who are hearing this are not out on Long Island, but think, well, this would be a great thing to do in Colorado or New Mexico or any place. Tell us about what you've done here and, are you accessible to people who want to give you a call and say, hey, I'd like to do similar things where I live? Um, now that I'm, there are many Jewish organizations that are finally dealing with addiction. You can go on the internet and find a lot of them. But this one, so I'm down in Florida. I'm helping with this Shabbaton. You know what a Shabbaton is? Like it's a weekend workshop. Yeah. For, and so you can't use the elevator. It has to, you know what? And so I was helping with, I was like on the welcoming committee and um, the rabbi near Seacliff, he 
It was 19, it was 2016, 15, the opioid epidemic was taking off in New York. It was deadly. And the rabbi was getting phone calls. My son, my wife, my niece, my grandchild. He was getting phone calls from everybody. What should I do? And he didn't have the answer. So he comes down to this retreat that I'm at. And I, he, we get to talk, he, he goes, I live in Glen Cove. I go, funny you should say that. I'm moving back there next week. And he goes, well, why don't we do something together? So this is the Northeast Recovery Alliance. of It's a sobriety resource for the Long Island Jewish community, which was hit very hard by the opioid epidemic. We lost a lot of people. And we lost people that we'll never know about. Families didn't want to let people know they had died of an overdose. You know, it was, you don't hear those stories. But statistically, because I work with Nassau County, there were a tremendous amount of overdoses in Nassau County alone. Um, so it's a group for family members who are trying to help your loved one get sober. So you're basically championing, champ, what's the word, champion? Championing. <laughs> <laughs> someone's journey you know it's it's monetary it's emotional it's and all these people they don't want to share it with just anyone it's kind of scary it's humiliating you're embarrassed where can you and it's not just um you know aa has a program um you know uh, that that is this is very different this is you get to share your feelings in a group and we try to impart spirituality through a Jewish lens in these groups, just to read, a, you know, read something, you know, read any kind of meditation book. We try to give people hope. We give them connection. They get phone numbers of other people in the meeting with them. It's very hard to manage a, a child who's in recovery. You don't know if they're going to make it. You don't know if they're going to stay at the rehab. They could run away. They could, you know, it's, a horror story out there but people need support the family members need support and so i do a meeting every week and actually at the temple but actually i've been doing it at other jccs jewish community centers i do one in roslyn to uh sid jacobson and also in plainview has a big uh jcc and we're just trying to support the jewish community in their fight against addiction and and such and, and alcoholism it's it's out there, man. It's out there. And this is for both the parents of addicted children and addicted parents themselves, too? No, no. Just family members. Just family I'm members. not going to help you get sober. I'm going to tell you how to support someone who's trying to get sober. Got it. Got it. Before I let you go, I want our listening audience to know that your book is not only a memoir, but also a cookbook filled with many fabulous recipes, including your famous healing chicken soup. Jane Box, this was a wonderful conversation. The book is The Hungry Mother, Recipes for Recovery and Life in the Kitchen. Thank you so much for joining me today on That Said. I look forward to seeing you at our next high school reunion. This summer. <laughs> this summer. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for... Um giving me a platform. I don't talk about it enough, and you've really helped me. Thank you. My pleasure. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.